Revelation chapter 1, we're going to begin this morning in verse 4. This is God's word. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests, a kingdom priests to our God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, that you have not left us to figure it out on our own, but that you have given us your revelation, the word of God, that we might know who you are, who we are, and how we might be saved. Lord, as we consider our future hope, May we be reminded that you are present with us now, that you are reigning over all matters and affairs, and indeed you are returning. Strengthen us with this this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I had the privilege yesterday of hanging picture frames, and those who laugh know me because they know that's not a privilege for Seth. I'm probably the least handy person you've ever met, and what would take most of you 10 minutes to accomplish took me, well, it wasn't really that long, but it felt like most of the afternoon. And when I did get everything hung, Leslie glanced over and said, they're not straight. (laughs) And she was right, of course. What Leslie is able to see with her eyes I don't quite see. So I told her, I'm going to get the level. I did. She would have done the same thing to make sure, of course. You get the level and you put it on top and you get them all straight. Well, then you know they're straight. You don't have to worry about the tricks your eyes play on you when you look at converging lines that are in the pictures or anything else that make you think, is that straight? Well, when we come to Revelation, sometimes we look at things in this book and it's clear. We just look at it and we know what it is. And then there are things that we read and we scratch our heads. And we need tools to understand what this is. There's one primary tool that we're using that I want us to use, that I want us to stay committed to. It's really two things working together. They don't work in isolation. You know what that is. It's God's Word uh, in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit. We have His Word. It's been given to us. We have His Spirit. All of you who are believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. So you have the tools to understand. That doesn't mean that we just magically understand everything, if only it were so, right? We do have to labor. Sometimes we see things. I mean, how many of us have read through Scripture for a significant part of our lives, and then we come to a passage and we think, I've never seen that before. You know you've read through it before, but somehow God illumines us, our hearts gives us understanding or helps us to see something afresh. 
And so we have the primary tools of His Word. And when we come to those challenging passages in Revelation, we need to look to other passages of Scripture. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so we look to other passages. We'll do some of that today. We're going to begin seeing how that works. I would mention as secondary tools those who are learned people who have studied and labored and gone before us. We have the work of others that we can look to. I do most of that work for us. I, that's, that's a significant part of my task each week is to do that work and to bring it before us. But I mention it because of the matters where there is consensus, where we read and we study and, and scholarly people from across the board agree primarily on an issue, we're not going to really unpack that. We're going to move through that rather quickly. We'll see one example of that today. Uh, where there is uh, differing ideas on something, we may dig down, take a little bit closer look, consider what others have to say. And so we have that as a secondary tool to understand, to make sure that the picture frame is level. There will be times and things that we see now that we may better understand later. I can almost guarantee it for all of us, myself included. There may be things that we come to that we have one opinion today, and maybe five years from now we shift in that opinion on something. That has I, I've been comforted by the fact in reading a lot of scholarly work, the number of commentators who are uh, willing to admit that they have seen things and, and, and kind of shifted their perspective once they've understood that. That's healthy when it comes to God's Word. It doesn't mean God's Word changes. His Word doesn't shift. But we grow in our understanding. We grow in our ability to understand. So keep these things in mind then as we continue our work through the book of Revelation. Now, last week we looked at the prologue and the first three verses today is this greeting from John to the seven churches in Asia. It's just five verses here, but as we read through it, you saw it's rich. There's a lot here. There's a lot to be unpacked. It's very, very dense. It's a, a seemingly longer greeting than what we would see in most epistles. There are longer ones. I'm sure I didn't compare as far as how long greetings were, but most greetings are fairly brief. This one's a little bit longer. Uh, I even considered breaking this up because there is so much here. I felt the need maybe to to break this up over a number of sermons. I saw one pastor who took these five verses and preached four sermons on the five verses. I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to keep them together. There's no right or wrong here. I'm going to keep it all together, though, for us today. We're going to look at it all in one setting because this is one greeting. I want us to see that for what it is. And so we are going to look at it as a whole. I want to summarize it in the beginning and just say that uh, one way we could summarize the greeting is captured in today's sermon title, Return of the King, or The Return of the King. I'm not going to make an excursus on Tolkien. I'll talk to you, any of you that want to talk about Tolkien afterward. Uh, I avoided putting that in here for the sake of time, but yes, that is a nod. And if you've seen uh, or, or read the books, you know that there is some imagery there that's very, very interesting in that third volume. What we see here as we read through the greeting is this building momentum. You sense it. And, and sometimes, uh, for me at least, I, I, I see it more as I read through it more. I've read through this a number of times this week. I see it more each time that there's this momentum in his greeting that seems to be rising up. And the crescendo, I would say, is in verse 7 where he says, Behold, he is coming. It's the look, you know, and we 
we know better than to look now, but if, if we were in any other setting, that's what the behold is. It's that person who points and says, look, and we all look to see what they're talking about. That's what John is doing here, saying, look, the king is coming. He will return. He will consummate. He will make his, his kingdom known on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in this idea is tension to say that the kingdom has come, it is coming, which is true. Both. <laughs> Both are true. The kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. We use the phrase the now and the not yet to describe this tension. If we look at Jesus, uh, when he was here uh, a number of times, he said things like when he sent his disciples out, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or when the Pharisees confronted Jesus after he healed a demon-possessed man, he explained to them, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And of course, John the Baptist, when he announced the ministry of Jesus, Jesus himself also used the same wording, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Jesus also spoke of the kingdom in a future sense as well, that the kingdom is coming. And this is why we come back to this phrase, the now and the not yet. It's here and yet it's coming. It's here and yet it's not fully realized or fully consummated. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, how? On earth as it is in heaven. And so we are looking for the kingdom that is fully realized in the heavenlies, fully established in the heavenlies. It's not evolving. It's not uh, changing in the sense of, of becoming something that is not. It is firmly established in the heavenlies. This is why Paul uses all of that language about uh, the, the, the wealth that we have in Christ, our position in Christ, uh, our, uh, all of this stuff. But he speaks of it in the sense of it's an inheritance. It's ours, he speaks of it in the present tense, and yet it's future, it's not yet realized. And so when the Lord finally does answer that prayer at the return of Christ, the kingdom that is firmly established in the heavenlies will then be known, realized, and seen visibly here on earth as it is in heaven. So this is one of the the central themes of the book. It's certainly a theme or the theme, uh, we could argue, of the greeting here that John gives to the churches. Now, I'm going to, I said this last week, I'm probably going to say it, if not every week, close to every week. The reason for these themes is the reason why he's writing the letter, and that is to give hope. If you took all of the eschatological writing in the New Testament, you would find that there is language of hope. Paul either prefaces it or follows it with, I write these things to encourage you. Or, for example, when Peter is opening his first epistle, he tells us to set our hope fully on the grace to be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed or when he returns. And so trying to to see Revelation as a puzzle to be put together is, is a mistaken approach. Revelation, eschatological writing, is given to us to give us hope that we might persevere, that we might endure. The king that is coming, when he comes will bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And our faith that we walk by now will then become what? It'll become sight. It'll become clear. It'll become fully realized. So his promised return then is designed to give us hope that we might persevere through whatever difficulties we face. And so as we begin looking in verse 4, we see John identifies himself as the author of the letter. 
He's the recipient of the vision. This is the example I mentioned earlier where there is great consensus that this is John, the disciple of Jesus, John the apostle, John the author of the gospel of John. Uh, There are always people who have other opinions, but we're not going to unpack that any further. It's John. It's the John we know. Uh, the John that walked with Jesus through his ministry. He addresses the letter to the seven churches in Asia. Now, this is what is today Turkey, uh, Western Turkey. And don't do it now because you'll get distracted. But later, if you have a study Bible, you've probably got a map in the back that will show these churches, or at least some of these churches, if you have one of the maps that shows Paul's missionary journeys. For example, Ephesus is going to be there, but a number of Bibles will have this. And you'll see that they make kind of a circuit. So the the, the reader that was mentioned in the opening would have taken the scroll that John wrote on and carried it through and made the circuit. Uh, but he would likely have gone on to other churches as well. We'll talk about that in a minute. And that is connected, though, with this whole idea of the number seven. If you've read through Revelation or if you've read through much of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you know that seven is a an interesting number. In Hebrew, it's a number that represents completeness or wholeness or a completed action. And so here is our first lesson in how we seek to understand the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we see numbers and symbols and things that seem to intend maybe more than what we would see or take at first sight. Numbers and symbols are are, are intended to be understood literally, symbolically, or both. And we will discuss that as we go through the book. Now, the argument by those who take what they describe as a literal approach um, isn't that they interpret everything literally. They just choose what not to interpret literally and say this should be interpreted symbolically. And those of us who, uh, I would argue, still take a literal approach, uh, we just recognize that in literature, we typically know when we come to something, uh, we've kind of been trained as we read and so forth to know what appears to be symbolic and what appears to be literal. And so and we come to Revelation, if we're unsure, we need to look at it. We need to look closely and determine, is this how is this to be uh, understood? Well, in this case of the seven churches, I think it is both. It is both literal and symbolic. The church, uh, the churches that were written to were literal churches. John addresses them. He names them. He not only names them, but he mentions specific issues that they're facing. He addresses those issues and, and encourages them, uh, to, 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 in a number of ways, to persevere, to continue on, to, to, uh, to, to repent in a sense. But the number also, seven also represents wholeness or completeness. And so this represents not just the churches in Asia that it's written to, but the entire church, the church around the world, and not just the church around the world, but the church throughout history. At the end of each of the sections that are addressed to these seven churches, John repeats the phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is kind of one of those whosoever statements, right? If you have ears, then you qualify, okay? Listen. Listen to what it says. And we could say uh, just of more interest here that the issues that were addressed in these churches were issues that most churches deal with at some point in time or another. They're very relatable, and we'll see that as we come to them. 
And so the book of the Bible of Revelation is for all believers in all geographies and all periods of time. G.K. Beale writes, His choice of the number seven is no accident. Seven is the favorite number of Revelation. Biblically, it signifies completion or fullness and is originally derived from the seven days of creation. In Leviticus 4, verses 6 and 17, the sevenfold sprinkling of the blood signified a completed action, as did the seven-day duration of festivals, the services of ordination, the march around Jericho, and the length of periods of cleansing from uncleanness. The significance of the number here is that the seven churches represent the fullness of the church. And so this is a letter that was literally intended and written and given to seven churches and is also intended for us to read, to understand, and as we looked at last week, to be blessed by. John then announces grace to you and peace from him. This is a common greeting that's found in the New Testament epistles. We recognize it. It was a practical greeting because this is how people in that day greeted one another. Greeks would use a variation of the Greek word for grace uh, to greet one another, to say hello. We're more familiar with the Hebrew greeting shalom, which is the word for peace. That's how they would greet one another. And so uh, many of the New Testament writers used this grace and peace uh, because the early New Testament church was predominantly Greeks and Jews. That's what the churches were made up of. But it's also significant in that it describes what we have received from God. In that peace is what God has given us. It's an all-encompassing term to describe our salvation, to describe the abundant riches, to describe the, uh, the, the forgiveness of sins, to describe the ultimate uh, peace that we'll know in eternal life. And so peace then is this it's all-encompassing term to describe what has been given to us and how have we received that peace, but by His grace. So it describes what God has done for us. And then moving on, we see the greeting identified as being from the triune God, from Him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ. So John is the author, but he's extending this greeting from the source of this letter from God Himself. And the description begins with the Father and then moves to the Spirit and ends with the Son. We'll talk a little bit more about the order here. We typically see Father, Son, Spirit. But John's doing something here where he is drawing our attention in on the work of the Son. And he takes in the greeting from this point on this expansion of the work of the Son, describing both his office, his roles, as well as his accomplishments, what he's done for us, before moving into that that, that culmination statement in verse 7, Behold, the King is coming. And so beginning then, let's look, the Father. The Father is described as Him who is and who was and who is to come. Where does this come from? Well, when Moses encountered God in the burning bush, he asked God this question. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, and, and they ask me what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So this is God's name here. The revealed name of God, I am, points to his self-existence. God has always existed. He is dependent on no one. He needs no one. He is completely, uh, he exists completely in and of himself. Therefore, he is over time. He is over space. He is over all matters. Sovereign, 
able to, 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 to rule and to reign, which of course again is designed to give us hope. Right? No matter what happens, the one who is and who was and who is to come is ruling and reigning. He is now and forever will be. And then we come to the Spirit, described as the seven spirits who are before His throne. Now, this is one of those phrases that if you're like me, when you read it the first time, it doesn't sound like the Holy Spirit, does it? And you might scratch your head. This is where we need those tools that I described, right? This doesn't come come straight to us. Uh, some have said that this is angels instead of the Holy Spirit. So I want to say up front that... Um, when we look at other passages of Scripture, we don't see that consistently. For example, if we look in the rest of Revelation, John doesn't describe angels as spirits. He always uses the uh, description of messenger, the word for messenger. So while in other parts of Scripture it can refer to angels, it doesn't in John's writing. So it would be inconsistent here for John to do this. But more importantly, John is putting the Spirit here on the same level as the Father and the Son, and he simply wouldn't have done that. It would have been inconsistent to stick angels in there with the Father and the Son as being on the same par or same level. And we would say further that grace and peace can only emanate from God Himself. Angels are not the source of grace and peace. Only God Himself is. Now, this isn't the only reason. When we go to other passages outside the book of Revelation, for example, in Isaiah 11, verse 2, we see a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit where seven characteristics are listed. Or in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, we see other sevenfold language used to describe the Holy Spirit. And so other scripture, other passages, both within the book of Revelation, the consistency by which John writes, and other passages outside of the book of Revelation point to the fact that this is the Holy Spirit. Now, the Son, the third uh, listing here is much more clear. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. There are three descriptions given here, and all are found in one of the Psalms, Psalm 89. In verses 36 and 37, the Messiah, the Son of David, as he's called there, is described as the faithful witness in the sky. And this is pointing out the prophetic role of Christ, that he comes as a witness to testify, to reveal, to show us who God is. Brings to mind Hebrews 1, where he, the author writes, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Secondly, he's the firstborn from the dead demonstrating his conquering over sin and death, and especially the resurrection from the dead. How, why did he have to rise? Well, because of his atoning work on our behalf, right? Uh, later he describes the, the blood by which we have been freed from our sins. And so in this we see Christ's priestly work. Paul wrote, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There again we see the atoning work of Christ or his priestly role. And then thirdly, the ruler of kings on earth. Again, back to Psalm 89 and verse 27. The psalmist writes, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. So we see both of those phrases there used in that same verse, firstborn. Highest of the kings of earth. 
So what do we see here? Well, John is using phrases or descriptions of Jesus that tell us who Jesus is, but they also point us to his roles. We see prophet, priest, and king. That Jesus fulfills those roles in our behalf. He reveals God to us. He atones for our sins that we might be righteous before God. And he rules and reigns and makes us a kingdom of priests. Another helpful image, though, that I felt uh, captures what we see here is written by uh, William Hendrickson. He says, in this salutation, we have the order of Father, Spirit, Son. And the reason for this order probably is that God is viewed as dwelling in his heavenly tabernacle or temple. Now, this is one of the first occasions that we have in the book of Revelation where we get to turn on our biblical imagination. Now, when I say biblical (coughs) imagination... I mean biblical imagination. We don't just get to sit and go, what can I think about? We're, biblical imagination is uh, our imagination that has been informed by Scripture. And so if you've been in any Sunday school class or read through any of the passages that teach about the tabernacle or the temple, you have seen pictures probably, but you've also imagined what it looked like. Uh, Maybe you've walked through a model of the tabernacle and you've seen what the elements look like. We're told in Scripture that the temple is a a representation uh, of of God's temple in heaven. Obviously, it would lack in many ways uh, what God's temple in heaven is like. But here, Hendrickson is pointing us to the fact that turn on your biblical imagination, if you will, and look at the temple in heaven. He says... Grace and peace are represented as coming from the Father who dwelt above the ark in the Holy of Holies and from the Spirit indicated by the candlestick with its seven lamps in the holy place and from Jesus Christ who His atonement was symbolized by the blood under the altar of the burnt offering in the court. And so if you imagine that visual of coming in from the most inner place of the temple and working your way outward, you see the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, you see the candlestick, You see the altar as you come out into the courtyard and you see this representation of what John is painting a picture of. There's so much of this imagery that we see in the book of Revelation that we, we, um, it's not like studying a doctrinal letter, uh, you know, like Paul's where he gives us instruction. He tells us specifically, you know, theology or how to live and so forth. This book is so full of imagery and symbols that it requires us to to uh, to imagine a little bit. So here is then the triune greeting from the Godhead expressed from John, given to the churches, that they might hear and know this letter is coming from the Sovereign Father, the Empowering Spirit, and the Conquering Son. And then from here, John begins to focus our attention here on the reigning king. He zeroes in on the person and the work of Christ. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What does that sound like? Sounds like a doxology, doesn't it? And it is. It's one of the first of many in the book of Revelation. It is a song of praise to Christ And Jesus in this doxology is described as the one who loves us. Present tense, present ongoing, right? This is, this is a love that is continual. He didn't love us in the past and stop loving us. He doesn't love us today and it's somehow conditional on our behavior. Christ loves us 
in an unchanging way and has freed us, past tense. It's been accomplished. It's been done. It's been taken care of by His blood. This language that John uses here uh, brings to mind the Passover in which the angel would pass over those homes in Egypt that had been painted with the blood of the lamb that had been sacrificed. And following the Passover came the Exodus and the people of God left Egypt. And it was at this time that God told the people of Israel, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Pastor Richard Phillips writes, in employing this language to speak of what Christ has done for believers, John makes clear the New Testament church carries on the identity of Old Testament Israel. Moreover, this statement shows that Christians are saved not merely into an individual relationship with God, but into kingdom responsibilities with fellow believers in the church. We know from Peter that we've been made a kingdom of priests. Peter's echoing this, right? This is the priesthood of all believers, that we don't have a hierarchy, we don't have people who are closer to God. If you think that I have a red phone in there, that my prayers are heard a little more clearly, you're mistaken. We all have equal access to God because of what Jesus has done. But we haven't just been saved individually. We have been commissioned in our salvation to give testimony to the grace by which we have been saved and how we live our lives as a people in our virtue as we obey, in our suffering as we persevere, and in our hope as we continually trust the one who has saved us. We are a kingdom of priests to his glory. And this is one of the reasons why we gather together and worship as a response to all that Christ has done for us. James Hamilton writes, We see here the pattern of all worship. God reveals himself and his people respond with the praise due him. Glory and dominion belong to Jesus because he loves us, he's freed us from our sins by his blood, and he's made us a kingdom of priests. And while we can say that worship is a way of life, right? We don't just come and worship and then go live however we want. We live, we worship as a way of life in all things, giving thanks and giving glory to God. But it is never just that. It is never just an individual experience. We come together as a kingdom of priests in obedience to our King, filled with thankfulness to Him as we sing and pray and hear the word preached each and every week. Following the doxology, John then proclaims this crescendo in verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. You recognize that phrase that he uses there because we read it this morning in our responsive reading from Daniel 7. It is a clear uh, indication or, or nod back to Daniel 7.13. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. We'll refer back to Daniel a number of times as we work our way through Revelation, but it's not the only place in Scripture where we see the second return of Christ described this way. Jesus described his second return this way in Matthew 24.30. Jesus said, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We notice that every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. This refers not just to those who literally pierced Him, but all who have rejected Christ as Savior. You'll notice there's no secret return of Christ. He will come and every eye will see Him. Not most eyes. Every eye will see Him. 
You notice from 1 Thessalonians 4.16, a passage that we're probably more familiar with that's often read at funerals. How is the return announced? At its happening, what happens? A trumpet, a loud trumpet, a cry of the archangel, and Jesus will appear. So all peoples will see. We're talking about a visible return. That's how Jesus will come back. Zechariah also prophesied of this same thing that we read here. He wrote in Zechariah 12.10, When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, this was written hundreds of years before Jesus was crucified, when they look on me, him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So the mourning that we see here is not, it's regret, it's not repentance. This isn't uh, people coming to a saving faith, but people who have realized the one that they have rejected was indeed who he said he was. And so while the second coming is a great joy for believers, it is utter devastation for those who have yet to put their trust in him. John then concludes the proclamation with even so and amen. And here again are these two different uses of Greek and Hebrew, both idioms of affirmation. It's his way of affirming to his readers who had either background, this is going to happen. Surely the king will return. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Brethren, no truth ought to be more frequently proclaimed next to the first coming of the Lord than his second coming. This will happen. And verse 8 is the final statement of this greeting. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And here God is speaking to the churches in Asia and to us today, reminding us that He rules over all things. Everything is in His hands. Uh, Alpha and Omega, first and last letters of the Greek uh, alphabet. It's, it's it, John's version of saying, hey, from A to Z, He's got it all covered. Nothing left out. There's nothing that's going to slip by. There's nothing that's going to surprise him. There's nothing that's going to come undone. He has it all in his hands. And as I prayed this morning, it's not just the grand history that God is sovereign over. He's sovereign over our history, what we're going through, what we're facing, what we're dealing with. And there is great comfort in that. A.W. Tozer writes, Because God lives in an everlasting now, He has no past and no future. When time words occur in the scriptures, they refer to our time, not to his. Since God is uncreated, he is not himself affected by that succession of consecutive changes we call time. God dwells in eternity, but time dwells in God. And over all time and history, he is almighty. It's one thing for him to be present in all of that. It only adds to it that he is almighty. And this is what John says here, that God alone has the power over everything. He has the power not only to control all things, but to redeem all things, to make all things right. And folks, isn't that what we really long for? We're comforted by the fact that God is in control, but what we long for is for everything to be made right, for all that is broken to be fixed. For all that has that we have experienced to be rectified. We long for that day. Because He was and is and is to come and is almighty, we have nothing to fear. Our lives are in His hands. The One who has loved us, who loves us now and has freed us from our sins, has all things. And so when the King returns... 
there will be no second chances. So hear me today in saying that today is the day of salvation. We read this morning from Psalm 2. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Folks, we all need refuge. And we feel that sometimes more than ever. My guess is with all that we've experienced in the last year, we feel the desire for that refuge. And He is a refuge. For you who have yet to believe, come to Him in faith trusting in Jesus alone that you can be freed from the weight and the guilt and the ultimate judgment of your sins. And for you who do believe, continue to trust in Him. Persevere. Press on. Dig deep down into this hope that we see in Revelation that the King will return. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on Thee when sorrows rise... On Thee, when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope, attend Thy will and wait beneath Thy feet. Dear refuge of our weary soul, Lord, we thank You that You are that. That we can come to You and find a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. Lord, we long for your return when all will be made right, when you will put back together everything that has been broken and marred by sin. And indeed, sin will be no more. Death will be no more. Tears will be wiped away. No more sorrow, no more gloom, no more fear, no more anxiety, no more despondency. Lord, we long for that day. But until that day comes, would you fix our eyes squarely on the hope that you are going to do all that you've said, that you will come back, that we are not left alone. Lord, we look to your indwelling Spirit in our hearts to be comforted, to be guided and strengthened, that we might remain faithful to the end. And Lord, I do pray that for us. Keep us faithful to the end. Our hearts are fickle. We wonder. We, we, we get off track so easily. We're so overcome by the weight that we bear at times. Lord, keep us faithful. Remind us of the hope that is ours in Christ. And strengthen us in that hope, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing in response our hymn of praise. Rejoice, the Lord is King, hymn number 310. Let's stand and sing.